Folks, I may have got this wrong, in which case I apologise profusely, but because um, this is Cafe Church, I'm allowed to do one or two things that, um, as it were, are slightly different from the normal kind of format. And uh, rest assured if you're now beginning to panic, um, because I am going to uh, offer you something that you might want to call a sermon or a talk. Uh, but in order that we can all make good sense of those Bible readings that we've just heard read to us, I wonder whether you could each, on your tables, very quickly pick one person... And that person on the table could lead your table in a prayer that goes along the lines of, Lord, we thank you for those readings from Acts and from Samuel. Now help us, we pray, by your spirit to, to learn and be fed and nourished from those passages. So just pick one person. Gang up on somebody. Pick them. Say, you're going to lead us in a prayer. And it's got to be a, literally a 15, 20-second prayer, no more. And then I'll lead us on from there. Thank you very much. I don't know whether you've ever been told the story of a um, newly promoted colonel who was um, a member of the um, American Armed Forces um, out in the Middle East during the 1990-91 um, Gulf War. And the story goes, and as far as I'm aware, it's entirely true, that this newly promoted colonel was setting up tent, um, having just arrived out there in the battlefield, when a private began, you could see over the corner of his eye, a private um, was approaching the tent with a toolbox in his hand. And this um, newly promoted colonel wanted to appear important in this young man's eyes. So he picked up the phone uh, and started to have this kind of conversation. Uh, yes, General Schwarzkopf, of course. I think that's an excellent plan. I'm grateful for the, your time in consulting with me. It has my full support. Yes, thank you, General. We will talk again. And then he put the phone down. Then he turned to this young private and said, Private, what is it you want? To which the private answered, I've just come to connect your phone, sir. <laughs> now, there's a sense in which, um, if you're anything like me, when it comes to talking about prayer, I probably, if anything, feel the lack of connection rather than a presence of connection. You know, it, it can sometimes just feel as though either... We're not connected, so we don't pray. Or we go through the motions and we say the words, but it still feels like, somehow, um, we're not um, getting through. Uh, and so what I want to do this morning is really just um, scratch away at this one Samuel story a little bit and see what it is that we can perhaps see under the surface about the nature and the business of prayer. Uh, and what I hope um, to offer you is something that will, um, uh, as it were, inform and encourage and enthuse you personally in your own prayers, but also in your corporate life, in your praying um, as a church um, together. Uh, and I'm going to offer you um, one or two thoughts and then perhaps just at one or two points break and ask you to have a little bit of a conversation around your table to see whether this is making sense uh, and how it applies. So let's dive straight in. The first thing I want to talk about is what I want to call hunger or need or brokenness. I don't know whether it's ever occurred to you that, but that we all have, as it were, a dashboard of dials in life. A number of different hungers or needs. Um, so, for example, I found a kindred spirit in a young boy sitting over there this morning who was sticking his fingers into a donut and obviously really enjoying it. And I thought, that's my kind of guy. Because those of you who work with me at CPS will tell you very quickly, what is John known for? He's known for his cakes. 
You know, I bring cakes in if there's an excuse in the office, and even if there isn't an excuse, I'll jolly well eat them myself, and others can watch um, or share. I've got a dial that you know could be called my donut dial. There are others, there are, you know, some people who just love uh, and need, as it were, encouragement and affirmation. And they've got, if you like, an affirmation dial. Uh, and they're the kind of people who, they don't work very well if the dial is reading low. They work better if the dial is reading higher. There are some people who've got an ambition dial. You, you, you know, you see them, let's be blunt, you see them climbing the greasy pole um, at work. And they've got this ambition dial. I'm not saying whether it's good or bad, I'm just saying that's the way it is. They've got this dial um, on their dashboard. Those of you who've read any psychology will remember um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, that's, that's what this is all about. We've all got certain needs, certain hungers. And it's very interesting, it seems to me, when you come to look at the Bible, how many of Scripture's best prayers are inspired by one or other of these needs. It's very interesting to see. So, for example, in the story we've just had read about Hannah, we're told in 1 Samuel 1.10, she wept much in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord, what for? For a son. Now, who is going to persecute this woman for having a dashboard dial that says, I long for a child, I long for a son. That's a very human, down-to-earth, real, flesh-and-blood, godly kind of thing. And she's not the only person in Scripture who, as it were, is motivated or driven to prayer by a deep sense of need or anguish or brokenness. Um, if you remember the story of Daniel 9, um, one of the great prayers of Scripture where we read this, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. What he was broken by was um, uh, the, the state of the nation of uh, of Israel, his people, God's people, in exile at that particular time. And it just broke him and it wounded him. And it was out of that place of pain that we read this incredibly inspired prayer. Or Nehemiah, do you remember the story of Nehemiah? When he's told about how the walls of Jerusalem are broken down, we're told that he actually weeps and fasts. It's like he's got news that his village has been destroyed, as it were. And he says, this is dreadful, this is dreadful. I can imagine right now, there must be thousands of Syrians and others who feel the same way, whose hearts have got a deep ache of brokenness because of what has happened to their communities, their homes, their lands. Or if you take... A New Testament story, Matthew chapter 8. A man with leprosy comes before Jesus and he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And we're told Jesus reaches out and heals him. What's going on there? Well, that man, you see, in his place of need, he's got a dashboard dial that simply says, health. And it's reading virtually nil. And out of that place of ill health and destitution and poverty and all the rest that would come out of leprosy in those times, he says, Lord, help. He prays out and Jesus hears him and heals him. There's a lovely story told of um, three vicars who are having a conversation on the side of the street about um, when their best prayers um, are offered. And one of them said, well, my, my best prayers are offered when I'm kneeling. 
You know, it's a sign of submission before God. And that's when I pray best. And someone else said, no, I pray best when I stretch out my hands to heaven, as it were, to reach and to bring heaven down. And another one said, no, my best prayers are when I'm completely prostrate on the ground. And there was a BT engineer who was working just nearby up a telegraph pole. And he said, listen, chaps, you've all got it wrong. My best ever prayers are when I'm falling off this thing up here. <laughs> there's, there's nothing like a sense of need or desperation or ache in the human heart to bring about what you might call real praying, biblical praying. And note when I say real praying, I don't mean fancy, long, eloquent, it might be all of those things, but that's not real biblical prayer. Real biblical prayer, if we're taking this as a model, is speaking to God out of a place of need and hunger and ache and brokenness. And church history has got loads and loads of stories. Some of the great missionary stories in church history are stories of individuals who in that place of ache and need cried out to God. So Duncan Campbell's a very interesting one. He was the guy who was behind, behind the Hebridean revival uh, in the middle of the last century. The story goes that he was wounded on the... Um, uh, the fields of northern France in the First World War and that he got converted as a result um, of this um, being wounded as he lay in a hospital bed on the western front uh, and the story goes that he actually led six Canadian soldiers to faith in Christ even while he was on his hospital bed then he went back up home to Scotland after the war and became a minister and things were and to cut a very long story short, it was his, um, his teenage daughter who challenged him one day about how things had gone kind of soft and soggy and his ministry was not seeing um, any real fruit um, for the gospel. And the story goes that he literally, night after night, in that, in that place where his dial, as it were, for ministry fruitfulness, gospel leadership was low, he, he, he begged and pleaded with God to fill him afresh with his spirit, that he might be a minister on fire, and that the dial in terms of, you know, souls to faith um, might increase. And it's a wonderful story. He was filled with God's spirit. He went on to lead um, missions and, and a number of what you might call classic um, revival um, situations. All because, you see, he got to that place where there was a sense of need and ache and brokenness in his heart. And it was out of that that he prayed. It was that that he offered to God, and it was that that God responded to. I could tell you about John Knox, 16th century Scottish um, leader, who prayed, give me Scotland or I die. And he wasn't thinking of a political thing, he was thinking of a gospel thing. Or praying John Hyde, who was a missionary to India in the, last, uh, uh, the 19th century. Jeremiah Lamphier, who led business meetings in New York 120 years ago, business prayer meetings. They used to meet in lunch, the lunch hour in the middle of New York on Manhattan to pray for American churches um, and revival. Or there were guys who used to go up on the hills in South Wales in 1903 and before, before the revival that happened there. And they prayed in need and brokenness and desperation. They looked at what they saw around, and they didn't feel good about it. They felt desperately challenged by it, and they took that sense of desperation and need and offered it to God. They had a hunger. They had a thirst. And I wonder whether 
if we want in our own lives and in our lives together, our corporate church life, if we want to be people who pray, if we want to see a house of prayer built, I wonder whether we don't need, as it were, just to think a little bit more into that kind of area. Now, in practice, you can't manufacture that, can you? You can't say, well, as we walk out the door today, let's pick up a bowl of anguish or a bowl of need or, or adopt a sense of brokenness. It's not something you can manufacture. But I think there are things we can do. Number one, I think we can ponder the words of some wise soul who said this, so often we're not hungry for heaven's blessing because we've been satisfied with earth's. They're actually quite disturbing words, aren't they? Certainly, I, I can't read those myself with ease. Sometimes we're not hungry for heaven's blessing because we've been satisfied with earth's. So maybe there's something we can ponder. Maybe we can pray something very specific, which would be, God, stir our hearts. That's not the same as saying, I'm going to walk out of here and make myself miserable. God, stir our hearts is a profound and a right kind of prayer. But maybe one of the things we do need to do, simply at a practical level, is to increasingly learn to take our needs and our hungers and our aspirations and our pains about whatever it is to God. Because maybe that's the place that generates the kind of prayer he wants to answer. So that's one thought, something about hunger and need and brokenness. Here's a second. This is about, if you like, our deepest convictions. This is about the belief or not that God is willing and able. Again, let's just go back to Hannah for a moment in this story. In verse 11 of 1 Samuel 1, we note the hunger, she's clearly got this dial that says, I'm desperate for a child, I'm desperate for a son. But I think we can also note, as it were, this deep down conviction in her. She comes um, to the place of prayer to pray. That's why Eli the priest notices her, notices her, rather than going anywhere else. And then when we get to verse 18 of this story, when she is promised by Eli, that God has heard her prayer, she's able to go away in peace. There is something here about getting to the place where she's convinced that God is able. God has heard and God can answer. And it's amazing how many times, again, some of the most amazing acts of faith and prayers in Scripture are authored by a conviction that God is able. So, for example, do you remember in 1 Kings 18, the story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? I mean, Elijah's either got to be a totally crazy guy, or someone who's got a very strong conviction that God is able. Do you remember the story? He says to these 450 prophets of Baal, he says, okay, let's both build an altar, then we'll cut up some bits of meat, put them on the altar, and you can pray to your gods and ask them to send down fire to consume the meat, and I will do the same. And he gives them all day, and they don't do anything, and then when it comes to his turn, he even makes the odds worse for himself by soaking the whole thing in tons and tons of water. You've got to think, he's either crazy, or he's got a deep conviction that God is able. And he prays, 
and fire falls from heaven. I've never understood why he chose to set up the contest that way. There must have been easier ways to set the whole thing up. But for some reason, that's what he goes for. And it's all built, you see, on this conviction that God is able. David and Goliath, do you remember David's words to Goliath? You come with sword and spear and javelin. I come in the name of the Lord God Almighty. He's got this thing in his heart that says God is able. God is able. I love the story of the um, man who used to operate the signals and the level crossing gates on an old branch line. Do you remember the old branch lines? And they'd have a signal box by the level crossing. And um, it was his job, obviously, to adjust the signals and open the gates when there was a train coming. And one day an inspector did a spot inspection and found that he had got one gate open and one gate closed. And he said to the signal box man, what on earth is going on here? You've got one gate open and one gate closed. And he said, oh, I was half expecting a train. <laughs> And maybe there are times when we half think God is able. C.S. Lewis, that famous author, Oxford Don, he said that there's a dividing line down every single church. It's a very interesting thing for a man of his stature and caliber to say. A dividing line down the middle of every church. And he said it's not, and he was thinking primarily of the Church of England, because that was his kind of world and understanding. He said it's not to do with those who love their bishop and those who don't love their bishop. It's not to do with those who are really committed to infant baptism and those who've got questions about infant baptism. He said, there's a dividing line down the middle of every church between those who believe in a supernaturally active and involved and able God and those who don't. Even within God's own church. And if we're being honest, this does actually show itself very subtly and without a, a label and without us knowing it. So... You know, we, we think of a neighbor or a family member or a friend who doesn't yet know for themselves the love of God in Christ. But we find it quite difficult to pray for them because we just can't see how they could change. I've, I've got friends that I was at university with and we've got a Christmas dinner with them in a few weeks' time. We've had Christmas dinners ever since we graduated from university. I think this is the 37th. Christmas dinner we're having together, or something, something like that. I've lost count um, over the years. And it's great that we're still, you know, good friends after all these years. But if I'm being honest, there are times when I think, actually, do you know what? I've kind of stopped praying, haven't I? Because it kind of feels a bit late now. You know, maybe God's not got a heart to see them come to himself. And you think, well, that's nonsense. Of course God's got a heart to see them come to himself. So maybe the problem here is not on God's end. Maybe the problem is at my end that I just can't kind of conceive of this being possible anymore. They've been immunized somehow against the gospel. Those are the moments where we have to say, well, hang on a second. Let's go back to someone like Hannah who year after year is carrying this pain of not having a child, and yet she's still got this conviction that God is able. And that's why she weeps, and that's why she turns up 
of the house of prayer. Or what about when we're talking, you know, someone that we want to pray for healing for? It's one thing is to say, yes, God is able. But it's a different thing to say, actually, I do believe God is able, and that's why I'm going to pray. The two are kind of statements, world apart. Let me invite you, if I can, just for two minutes to have a very brief conversation around your table. Here's the question I'd love you to talk about. What do you, what would you love St. Mary's to have a God is able conviction about? What would you love St. Mary's to have a God is able conviction about? Have a, have a bun if it gives you a sugar rush and helps. Two or three minutes. What do you wish St. Mary's had a God is able conviction about? Three minutes. Um, forgive me for asking what you've said. Um, it may be that some conversations are half formed and you got halfway there. So we won't um, expose you or run the risk of you having to say we're not quite sure yet. But it's a good question to ask, isn't it? What do we wish that St. Mary's had a God is able conviction um, about? Uh, and there's a third thing I want to offer, um, uh, looking at this story from Hannah, um, about how we can, um, as it were, be nurtured and encouraged and challenged in our prayers, both together and um, uh, as individuals. And it's something to do with a willingness to engage with prayer as God's appointed Instrument. Let me say that again. It's something to do about a willingness to engage with prayer as God's appointed instrument. It's interesting how many of the great theologians and leaders uh, have written very specific words about prayer and how, if we can reduce it to this level, quote, prayer works. So, for example, William Temple, who's one of the greatest archbishops of the last century, said this, When I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. It's a beautifully Anglican way of putting it, isn't it? Very subtle and nuanced. Or Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great 19th century Baptist leader, who was a bit more blunt, he said this, Prayer is the slender nerve that moveth the muscles of omnipotence. That's a great one, isn't it? Prayer, the slender nerve that moveth the muscles of omnipotence. The, the last Bishop of Oxford, John Pritchard, said this, Prayer controls the borderlands between heaven and earth. That's a very evocative way of putting it. And you see, this, I guess, is what Hannah had understood in her heart. And that's why she went again and again to the place of prayer. She had a need, she had an anguish, she had a conviction about God being willing and able, and in response to that she pursued God's, as it were, appointed instrument, which was to intercede, um, to pray. Now let's just check that this is biblical, because obviously I'm, I'm offering you a thesis here, and you should always check what the preacher says against lots of places in scripture, in case they're just making it up. Very interesting, I was reading early this week one or two of the stories of Moses again. And um, in Exodus 17, do you remember that story of um, the uh, Israelite army has to fight the Amalekites? Uh, and in Exodus 17, we have the story of Moses on the top of a hill, and for so long as his arms are held up, 
there's victory in the valley below. But when his arms go down, the Israelites are retreating and the Amalekites um, are in the ascendancy. And uh, all the Bible commentators agree, this is, a, this is a picture of prayer. And while Moses' hands are being held in the air, it's as if prayers are being offered to God. And while prayers are being offered, the people of Israel know victory. Uh, interestingly, in Exodus 32, there's another story of where Moses intercedes, not this time for Israel fighting another army, but this time on behalf of Israel, because as he comes down from the um, mountain with the tablets, um, he discovers that the people have made some idols and are, you know, worshipping the golden calf. And God, we're told that God's anger burns against his own people. And Moses has to intercede. And we're told, and this is a very interesting statement in Exodus 32, verse 14, the Lord relented and did not bring on Israel the disaster he had threatened. Moses prays and God relents. If you read 2 Corinthians, two, sorry, 2 Chronicles 7, there's that very famous verse, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven, dot, dot, dot. Or Jeremiah 33, call to me and I will answer. Now those are all Old Testament as it were, proofs or supports of this idea that prayer is God's appointed instrument. What about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament, if anything, is even blunter. Luke 11, Jesus says, ask, and it will be given you. Matthew 11, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe, and it will be yours. By the time we get to James in our New Testament, a very blunt statement, you don't have because you don't ask. There's, there's not many ways you can interpret that, really. You know, you don't need too much of a theological explanation of that statement. You don't have because you don't ask. In other words, the Bible again and again and again makes the connection between our prayers and God's activity. Now, I don't understand the economy of that. I really don't. And if I was God, I'm not sure I'd do it that way, but, you know, I'm not. That's the way that the Bible describes it, that there is a relationship between our prayers and the wonderful, sovereign, glorious, life-changing activity of the living God. So what does that mean for some areas? Well, the short answer to this is, I can't answer that question for you. So I'm going to ask you once again, just to have three or four minutes round the table, and I've put three questions on here that help us. What does hungrier for God's intervention look like for us, for you as a church community? What does hungrier for God's intervention look like? Where is your hunger oriented or located? Secondly, how do we grow confidence amongst ourselves that God can? And thirdly, how can we more effectively engage in God's appointed way of securing heaven's presence on earth. I'm drawing there on the words that I've just quoted from the former Bishop of Oxford. So just three or four minutes, rather than me sum this up for you in a nice, tidy, neat conclusion, this is three or four minutes just to throw it open and say to you, given what I've offered you this morning, by way of commentary on one Samuel and Hannah's experience, how would you go about answering those questions? It doesn't matter which one you pick, it doesn't matter if you only pick one, it doesn't matter if you dive all over the place. Three or four minutes conversation around your table to see what it is that we can take out of this passage and our thinking together.
please enjoy three or four minutes of conversation.